This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Julie Oliver, Democratic nominee for Congress in Texas's 25th. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's our pleasure. So Julie, for starters, could you tell us about your background and what inspired you to run for Congress? I was born very, very poor in South Oak Cliff, which is the south part of Dallas. When I was 17 years old, I took kind of a a rebellious detour in life, and I dropped out of high school my senior year, ran away from home, and was homeless. I was actually living in abandoned buildings with my boyfriend, and I got pregnant. So I went back home. And with the help of my family, my community, and with government assistance, I had a very healthy, thriving baby girl, who is now 28, by the way. She's 28. She's a PhD candidate at TCU in Fort Worth. So I'm super proud of her. And um, I ended up not only finishing high school, but I went on to college and law school. And in college, I was able to get through college. I went to the University of Texas at Arlington and get through college debt-free because there were government programs available and assistance to me, you know, so that I could fund my college education. And I would love to ensure that those policies that were available to me and those uh, those programs that were available to me are available to kids going to college today. And one of the things that really helped get me through college was something called the Earned Income Tax Credit. And at the time, and I think it still operates this way, um, if you have low income, and, and especially if you have a child, you've got a very hefty tax, refundable tax credit. And mine was anywhere from like anywhere from like three to four thousand dollars a year. And in the early nineties, that was just a tremendous amount of money. So I worked every summer. You had to work, you had to have some sort of income, earned income. So it couldn't be that if you had investments, you could just rely on your, you know, interest or dividend income. You actually had to go out and work. And so um, I would like to expand that so you wouldn't have to have a child to, to qualify for the earned income tax credit, but that if you earned income and you were in college, you could get a tax credit that would help offset some of the cost of college. Anyway, that's just one of my policy platforms. But going on, um, what really got me motivated and wanting to run this race is healthcare. And I know for, for people um, who are younger than me and feeling perhaps a little more invincible. Healthcare may not be first and foremost in the mind, but I tell you, there's a tremendous amount of freedom when your healthcare is not tied to your job. And it allows people the flexibility to start their own businesses, to be creative. And then also, if you do have a a company, it allows you to attract and retain talent if you did not have to have healthcare insurance component of it. And I've made a career uh, in healthcare finance for the last 15 years. That's the world in which I've worked. We can bring everybody's costs down by providing guaranteed universal healthcare to everybody. And my son is, uh, he's 21 now, but when I had him, he was born into neonatal intensive care, which if we didn't have insurance, would have bankrupted our family. When he was five, we discovered that he had a heart condition. 
condition. And again, if we didn't have insurance, his procedures and diagnostic uh, testing, everything would have bankrupted our family. And when he was a freshman in high school, we discovered he had an immune deficiency. And again, it would have bankrupted our family had we not had insurance. But a key proponent, or I'm sorry, a key provision of the Affordable Care Act is the Patient Bill of Rights, which prohibits insurance companies from discriminating against folks with pre-existing conditions. That's just a very long way of saying healthcare got me into this race, and I see how important it is to people and how much freedom it can offer people when it's not tied to the workplace. So I'm really glad you touched upon education since it is such a big issue for our listeners. Could you delve a little more into what policy is you're promoting to ensure that millennials don't graduate college burdened with massive debt? If somebody has to get in debt to fund their education, I would like to see zero cost or no cost loans, meaning you would cap interest at one or 2%. It doesn't make sense that somebody pays more in interest for their graduate or college education than they do for their car. I mean, it is it is just, it does not make sense to me. It is a guaranteed loan. There's nothing you can do to ever get out from under that loan, unfortunately, unless, unless Congress sees to it that we change some of those laws. And for people who have hit a financially hard time, they could declare bankruptcy and even include their loans in that, their student loans. But until that time, no cost or low cost. Uh, loans. And then again, I would love to see an expansion of the earned income tax credit so that college students who want to work part-time and go to school or work full-time during the summers and take off during the fall and spring semesters could get a refundable credit that would add tax credit that would actually help augment their income. And again, that's something that tremendously helped me when I was in college. But using the tax code in creative ways like that, um, a year ago when Congress was debating the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which I am not in favor of, it was a it was a giveaway to corporations and the wealthiest 1% of Americans, um, one of the things that they initially proposed was taxing tuition waivers to graduate students graduate students who offer their services to a university in exchange for tuition or reduced tuition, that income is going to be considered taxable. And thankfully, that's not what happened in the final act, but we need to make sure that that doesn't happen because that's not exactly a cash transaction there. There's no money to pay those taxes. This would be a burden on graduate students and they would have to take out or acquire uh, loans and debt to pay for the taxes on that because many of them are giving themselves full time to their graduate endeavors. So we want to make sure that we don't put that burden, a tax burden on our college students and and our graduate students. So looking at one specific proposal, Senator Brian Schatz has a plan for debt-free public education. And this aims to not only address the cost of tuition, but also the high cost of food, housing, and materials for classes. If you are familiar with this plan, what are your thoughts on it? And if not, what are your thoughts generally on something of this nature? So I have not heard of that plan, but I think that's a terrific plan. When you go to college and and, and grad school, it's not always just the cost of education. It's not always what you pay to the college or university that you're attending. There's obviously a component of housing and food that needs to be met. When I'm when I moved to Austin. 23 years ago to go to law school, it was so incredibly expensive. It is. It's still very much an expensive city, city, but it's a very expensive city for students. 
I had to acquire debt in law school just to pay for housing and my expenses. I had a five-year-old daughter. Uh, we had to eat and have to pay electricity and, and all of our bills. And um, it was our living expenses were much, much higher than my tuition at the University of Texas School of Law. And so I am in favor, again, of no-cost no loans to, to students. And, you know, and it, I guess you can look at it. I don't see that it necessarily has to be a public university that somebody's going to. It could be private, but you could maybe cap it out, um, the amount that somebody could get at a no-cost um, if they choose a private university over a public university. But, yeah, you, it's incredibly expensive to go to school. And then when you add the, the cost of living on top of that, that can be quite unmanageable for people who are living on very, very limited amounts of income. And then once you graduate, you're still, you're not, your career has not been maximized. Your, your pay earnings have not been maximized. You're starting out. So we need to do everything we can to make investments in education and that, again, includes uh, making the cost of college and graduate education affordable. And obviously, this plays into the problem of income inequality, which is probably one of the greatest of our time. How would you hope to address income inequality as a member of Congress? Well, I do think we need to raise our minimum wage. We absolutely do. People cannot live at, at what our federal minimum wage is currently. I propose, I, I mean, I don't propose it. It's it's already been proposed, but I am in favor of a $15 per hour minimum wage. Um, people should be making living uh, a living wage and not something to just kind of survive. That many people who make minimum wage are having to work two and three jobs just to pay for something as simple as groceries. And if you think about trying, trying to pay for anything on top of that, like health care, going to movies or something, that's just not a reality for many people. I think we need to write, and when I say write, make it correct, our tax code. Um, I alluded to it earlier, but the tax cut from December of last year was the largest transfer of wealth our nation has ever seen, and it was, has resulted in even more income inequality. For folks who earn the most, who, have, who stand to lose the most if they didn't have the protections of the United States government behind them, they should pay the most. So we need a fair tax code where everybody is, is paying a fair share. But to, for somebody who is making, you know, minimum wage or slightly above minimum wage to pay more of an effective tax rate than somebody who's a millionaire many times over, there's something fundamentally wrong with that. And so we need to use our tax code in ways that will help um, create less income inequality. So in your eyes, what exactly does a fair share look like for the top 1% for millionaires and billionaires? Well, I, you know, I do believe in uh, a progressive tax rate. So I, I think that a uh, fair share kind of looks like where we were uh, November a year ago. I think that uh, a fair tax rate for corporations is uh, 25 to 30%. And if they're making even more than that, you know, again, a, a progressive tax code of progressive tax rates that can get up to 35%. What we found with the tax cuts last year is that corporations got nearly, not quite a 50% tax reduction, but a 40 plus percent tax reduction. And they have not reinvested those, that cost savings in wages. They have not invested it in their workforce. Even with the one-time bonuses that were paid out, like I'll give you the example of AT&T paid out 
I think it was a, a one-time bonus that equaled, I think it was about $400 million for all of their, for all the employees who received one. Well, to give you some context, $400 million in, in wages and salaries, that was, that was a one-time event, one-time bonus event. AT&T will get about a $1 billion tax break every year. That's not right. So um, looking, looking at your district in particular, in March 2017, a panel of federal judges ruled that your district lines and two others in your state were illegally drawn with discriminatory intent. However, the district was allowed to stand in the Supreme Court's 2018 Abbott versus Perez ruling. What are your thoughts on this? Well, if you haven't gotten a chance to look at our district online, I encourage you to go to Wikipedia. And when I call it the jalapeno heart of Texas, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, It is a jalapeno-shaped district that spans 200 miles north to south. Any city or town that has a major college or university is typically cut into one or more congressional districts. I'll give you, for example, Hayes County to the south has three congressional districts. That's where Texas State resides. University of Texas um, here in Austin, we have five congressional districts in Travis County. In Stephenville, uh, Erath County, that has been carved into two congressional districts, even though Stephenville is, is relatively small. It's a, a fairly rural community. But it does have a college, and they tried to dilute the vote of university students, but they also, beyond that, tried to dilute the vote of minority voters. And that's exactly what they've done. In my district, it covers uh, Burleson in the north, just south of Fort Worth, and Cleburne, and then passes in Hamilton. And then you come down in through western Travis County, and then about a four-block span connects western Travis County with the University of Texas, and my district actually has all of the University of Texas campus in it, but where students live, West Campus is in a different congressional district. So the kids who live on campus are in my district. The kids who live um, off campus live in a completely different congressional district. And then it goes east um, to East Austin, which East Austin has had its uh, history of, um, if I'm being blunt, racism. Many, many years ago, the city carved a line. They used I-35, which was a road, I think, at the time, as a dividing line that kept African-Americans on the east side and uh, Caucasian folks on the west side. And so East Austin today has still got a very rich and diverse community and lots of African-American and uh, Latino, Latina voters. But when you carve East Austin up with Land passes in Hamilton and Clifton, Texas, and uh, many, many other parts of, of Texas that are incredibly rural and, and lean more Republican. You dilute the vote. You dilute the vote of university students, and you dilute the vote of minority voters. And so, it, in in my race, um, we have a congressman who thinks he sits very safely in this district, and he does feel the need, nor does he feel compelled to go out and reach voters and talk to them or hold town halls. I think he's mistaken. He didn't meet somebody like me who's willing to put, you know, 40,000 plus miles on her car to reach every county in this district and to talk to as many voters as I possibly could. And not just talk to them once, go back and talk to them again and again and again. Because I want people to feel like their vote matters. I want them to feel important. 
in that, yeah, even though there, it was intentionally drawn to disenfranchise voters, um, and especially Democratic voters in this district, we can show up in numbers and we can vote and we can flip this district as crazy as it looks on a computer screen. So given the upcoming census and the efforts by the Trump administration to ensure that immigrant families in particular don't fill out the census by mandating a citizenship question, what would you do as a member of Congress to fight for a truly accurate census and ensure a fair redistricting process? Well, I think there are a number of things that we can do, but I think, first of all, I want people to know that if the administration's policy of discouraging uh, our immigrant population from completing census data in 2020 goes through, Texas stands to lose in a very, very significant way. Because obviously federal dollars um, are allocated based on population. Representative seats in the U.S. House of Representatives are based on your population and your census. And so Texas stands to lose if this, if this policy goes through. And unfortunately, in my mind, this isn't an area that should be um, decreed by executive order or, or at a, the whim of a president. I don't believe that he should have control over this, something so important as a census. It's only done every 10 years. And I think at a federal level, we can actually mandate how a census is conducted, and we can mandate that it's within our purview, not the president's purview, of how and how we do our censuses and who we include. Because it really, again, it should not be this thing that, that bounces around from one president to the, to the next, depending on who's in office, um, when there's a year that ends in zero. We also need, we really do need to address gerrymandering. And unfortunately, our lines are drawn at a state level, but we need to revisit the Voting Rights Act. That's something that we can do at a national level. There's a section of the Voting Rights Act that deals with formulas um, that allow states to come under uh, court review when they're drawing, drawing lines. That provision was found unconstitutional by the U.S. Supreme Court because they said the formulas were outdated. We need to go in and update the formulas. So that states like Texas, states like Mississippi and Alabama, um, states that have voter suppression and gerrymandering come under authority and review of a court so that we can make sure that people are fairly represented. And then obviously at a state level, I would advocate for and ask my, my state colleagues to um, come up with a bipartisan panel of citizens who can review congressional lines. These people really, it does just such a disservice to folks to not be drawn in a, fair, uh, in a district that represents uh, their values and their concerns and their needs. So there's a lot I want to touch upon there. Uh, the first is voting rights. Your state is pretty well known for voter suppression, especially after a 5-4 majority on the Supreme Court dismantled the Voting Rights Act by striking down the preclearance section. What exactly is the state of voting rights in your state, and what could you do to protect them and restore them? Well, again, I think we, we need to go back to that preclearance section and update the formulas. Uh, again, the U.S. Supreme Court found them unconstitutional because they found that they were outdated. But we have plenty of data that's more recent that shows that there are voting rights. There is voting rights suppression in not only our state, but many others. And um, I would say the state of voter suppression, when you ask specifically in Texas, I think it's alive and well in Texas. And it's unfortunate that we have um, a, a governor 
and an attorney general that at every chance they can, they will do whatever they can to suppress the vote that they don't want. Oh, gosh, it's it's a mess. But if we can get that preclearance section of the Voting Rights Act restored and write it in a a way that um, is not unconstitutional, but constitutional, we can do a lot for states like Texas to make sure that their lines are drawn fairly. And um, I tell people, if, if I am elected to office and I am able to help us get fair lines drawn in Texas, and that means I get drawn out of my own district, I will have not done my job. A lot of this gets down to the Supreme Court. The case that upheld these discriminatory lines was decided by a 5-4 conservative majority. Now we know that that majority will probably be around for a while given the youth of the conservative bloc versus uh, the age of the more liberal bloc. I'm curious as to if you share the concerns expressed by many progressives that any major pieces of progressive legislation, such as Medicare for All, would ultimately end up being struck down by the Supreme Court. Of course there's that concern. You know, we've had, especially with the most recent Supreme Court confirmation, we had a, a, a justice that was rammed through in an expeditious manner without full disclosure of the documents he wrote as an attorney in the White House. As we know, it, it, this is something that does not need to be contemplated lightly. There needs to, it needs to be incredibly deliberate. I'm going to touch on an issue that I think is not only the problem with Supreme Court confirmations, but it's also a problem with uh, the decisions that congressmen and women and senators make in general. And that is the issue of big money in, comp- in politics. It remains to be seen, although I have not done the, the research, but I'm sure it's out there now. Uh, how much will be spent or was spent on Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation? Neil Gorsuch, to give you some context, Neil Gorsuch, when he was confirmed to the Supreme Court, an anonymous donation of $28.5 million was made to the Judicial Crisis Network, an advocacy group. They want very, very conservative jurists sitting on courts across the country, but including the Supreme Court, $28.5 million to make sure that Neil Gorsuch's confirmation went through. We don't know who is behind that money, and we don't even know if it was perhaps a hostile foreign power behind that money. We'll never know. And that's problematic, because Supreme Court confirmations are lifetime appointments. We know that. And they will be decreeing the law of the land for their entire term in the Supreme Court. And it's not fair that somebody gets to come in, an anonymous donor, and, and with that much financial influence, make this decision on behalf of the United States voter. Because guess what? That, that anonymous donor doesn't reflect the values or reflect the population. And even if it was one person behind that $28.5 million, that would be one vote. It's not fair that one vote got to put a Supreme Court justice um, in the United States Supreme Court. And so I think there's a bigger issue of big money corrupting the decisions that are made by congressmen and women and putting people who are not appropriate in the positions of extreme power. And you're right, it it should be concerning to all of us. So are there reforms to the Supreme Court you see that are necessary given that this system 
clearly isn't working regardless of which president in office and that there's no real way to ensure a democratic process to confirm justices. Yes, I'm glad you asked that question because I do think that campaign finance reform is part of that. Um, and my uh, one of my platforms is, and at the top priority, is campaign finance reform. And that's campaign finance reform, whether it's the way people um, get money to fund their campaigns, or whether it's something like this, where you have a Supreme Court justice who's getting confirmed and an anonymous donor comes in and influences the decisions of senators. I have a plan that we tax PACs and super PACs, political action committees, especially super PACs. They serve no other purpose than to influence uh, decisions uh, made by uh, politicians, and they serve to influence election outcomes. There's no other reason they exist, and right now they are afforded tax-exempt status. If you think of a traditional charity like United Way, United Way cannot engage in any political activities because they risk losing their tax-exempt status. Let's revoke the tax-exempt status of tax and super PACs, and, and let's tax them. And let's tax them at such an onerous rate that we discourage the investment in the first place so that campaigns are truly, truly funded by just individuals and not special interests and certainly not corporate special interests and certainly not hostile foreign power special interests. So I think that that is one way that we can address this is through campaign finance reform and, and what we allow, what sorts of money we allow to influence our political system and making sure that we get we limit the amount of corporate special interest in our elections is one way to do that. And Congress has broad uh, constitutional authority to tax, to kind of tax whatever it wants to tax. And what are your thoughts on the confirmation process of Brett Kavanaugh in particular? <laughs> oh, oh I, I think it was, um, I think it was a travesty. I, I think, I mean, it was appalling and I think it, um, I, I don't believe him. I'm just going to be honest. I do not believe Brett Kavanaugh. I believe Dr. Ford. You know, and I think that that confirmation was such a slap in the face to anyone who has been a survivor of sexual assault, male or female. And I, I think that there were plenty of other candidates they could have considered. And once Brett Kavanaugh's history and, and the fact that he lied under oath became apparent. He should no longer have been considered for, for this position. It should have been, you know, his, his nomination should have been revoked, and we should have gone to it to the next person in line. But I think it was, I think it was an absolute circus. The whole, the whole hearings process. Given that he did perjure himself, do you believe that impeachment is an appropriate option to explore? I do. I do indeed. And what about for the president? And there are many grounds. I'm sure you're familiar with these discussions. So this is very open-ended for you. Right. Well, I, I think we need to see where the investigation, the Mueller investigation leads. And should there uh, be grounds for high crimes and misdemeanors, then yes, it is appropriate to, to begin impeachment proceedings. And it does sound like Mueller is wrapping up his investigation. I think I read something either this morning or yesterday that he will have some key findings. Um, just after the midterm elections. However, there have been 19 indictments and I think five convictions. So that speaks a lot about um, the people the, the president had surrounded himself with. And if his findings 
reveal that there were high crimes and misdemeanors, then absolutely it is appropriate to begin impeachment proceedings. So going back to voting rights, voting rights were a key part of the recent nationwide prison strike. Demand number 10 of the strike was, quote, the voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called, quote unquote, ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count, end quote. To add some data to this, the Urban Institute's Justice Policy Center found that allowing people convicted of felonies to fully re-enter society decreases recidivism, and not allowing them to vote also decreases voter participation with those in their life, including family members and friends. And of course, as I'm sure you know, this is a racial justice issue as the incarcerated population Mm -hmm. is disproportionately people of color especially Black Americans. What are your thoughts on demand number 10 of the nationwide prison strike, as well as criminal justice reform at large? Well, I do think that people who have uh, served their time and have come out either on parole or at the conclusion of their their sentence, they should be able to vote again. Um, They've done their time. Uh, I mean, I've just, I've heard too many stories of folks who have waited, you know, over 10 years to try to vote after being released from um, their confinement period, and that, that's wrong. You're right. It, if somebody is trying to reintegrate into society again, voting is a necessary component of that. As far as criminal justice reform, I think the biggest campaign priority I have with respect to criminal justice reform is ending the federal prohibition on marijuana. Because too many people, again, it's our prisons are filled disproportionately by people of color, and many of them doing time for something as simple as as, as marijuana, having marijuana on their person. And uh, it's, I think that's an area that could, you know, has bipartisan support. Actually, is in the federal prohibition on marijuana, and then beyond that, you know, there's so much to gain. Um, as far as saving millions of dollars, Medicaid dollars, you can actually address the opioid uh, crisis in America, and you can regulate it and tax it. So it's silly that marijuana is still considered um, a classified classified drug on the federal list. So I think that that's where I would start. Mandatory uh, minimum sentences, I think that would be next on the list. Um, It really should be up to, you know, a, a district attorney knowing the severity of the crime and the situation, negotiating with the defense attorney and making those recommendations to a judge who ultimately has has the say of whether um, a sentence is uh, appropriate or not. Yeah, those those cases, those one-off cases, and they always make the news when it's an inappropriate short period of time for um, a crime. But typically, those those short sentences are never um, people of color. Unfortunately, people of color get the long sentences. And mandatory minimums ensure that people of color will, will sit behind bars and uh, stay there a long time. It also goes to private prisons. We do not need to be um, filling uh, our prisons. Or, or I'm sorry, we should not be utilizing private prisons level or the state level, although I, don't, I wouldn't have control over the state level, but at a federal level, we would. And I would like to, us to end any federal contract with any private prison or detention. They're incentivized to keep people inside the prison. And when you are incented that way, you're less likely to provide the services that are necessary to rehab somebody that would allow them success on the outside. 
I think that kind of speaks to the fundamental question of what the point of our criminal justice system is. You know, what you're saying about helping people when they're on the outside, because right now we do have a punitive system that has not actually been shown to decrease crime rates. What should the purpose of our criminal justice system be? And how should it work to ensure both safety and rehabilitation? Right. Well, I, here's the funny thing. I remember in, in law school when we were looking at the different the different ways you could do criminal justice, they almost taught it as if they, everything was mutually exclusive. You know, you had to look at it this way or you had to look at it this way. And there's no reason that it can't be a blend of both. It can be punitive in nature. Absolutely. You know, you do something wrong, there's a punitive component. Even if you're speeding, there's a punitive component if you're caught by a police officer and the fact that you get a ticket. Um, so that's one element. But it, at the same time, it doesn't seem that you have to make it mutually exclusive of rehabilitating somebody. And part of um, our problem with criminal Part of our criminal justice problem is that we have so many people in prison who need help, you know, with mental health care. They're sitting in prisons, but the reality is what they need is mental health care services. And I am advocating for a comprehensive health care solution that provides mental health care services to anybody. Um, and I think that you could address, I mean, a lot of addiction issues. I, I mean, I'll get personal on this. I have an older brother who is an addict. And he has spent a lot of time in jails and prisons because every time he gets pulled over, they find personal use narcotics on him. Because he's on probation, he's like perpetually on probation, he gets pulled back into the jail system and then his probation gets revoked, he gets into prison. He does not need to be in prison. He's not a violent offender. He is an addict or he has a substance use issue. And that is the underlying, why can't we treat that so that he can have success in his life outside of jail and outside of prison? Yeah, there, there can be a punitive aspect to it for people, especially for, for violent offenders. Yes, there's got to be a punitive aspect to that. Um, but we also want to, as much as we can, help people have success on the outside. And I will tell you, um, the Austin Community College District does this amazing program for people um, when, they're, when they're coming out of incarceration. And it really is to help educate them and help them acquire a trade because many people who come out of the prison system or jail system are not eligible for, for getting hired places. And many employers won't hire them because they won't pass a criminal background check. So for them, the only option is to become an independent contractor. Well, in trades, you can be an independent contractor. So when it comes to heating, ventilation, and air conditioning, or plumbing, or welding, or truck driving, you can be um, an independent contractor. And they have such an incredible success rate, and it's either low cost or no cost to the person coming out of incarceration. And once they graduate the program, they have a 100% placement rate. Those are the type of pro types of programs I would love to see um, nationally in implemented. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will Will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout-out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. I'd like to touch back on the subject of immigration. Obviously, the most visible thing right now is the family separation crisis. Uh, Of course, you oppose that policy. I'm curious as to your overall immigration policy platform, as well as what you would actually do to hold those who oversaw and enacted the family separation accountable for their actions. We do need to hold them accountable. Um, The head of the, you know, Health and Human Services, uh, our president, our attorney general, they need to be coming before before Congress in hearings. And noted, I want I want your listeners to note that nothing has happened since the family separation policy was implemented at the beginning of the su- summer. Nothing has happened at a congressional level. Our our leaders, congressional leaders, have never met to say we're not going to allow any other administration to implement this policy. In fact. Donald Trump right now is reconsidering doing it all over again. Even though federal judges have said you can't do this, he's considering doing it all over again. You know, he I don't know if he thinks he just gets to rule by decree, but this is not a monarchy and it's not a, not a dictatorship. This is still a representative democracy and Congress has a role and their role is, and it should be a checks and balance role, but unfortunately we don't have that checks and balance actually working right now. Um, but yes, that's a, a very important component. We, Our country was founded on the premise that there would be checks and balances among the three um, branches of government, the executive, the administ- uh, executive, legislative, and judicial branches. And there are no checks and balances right now. But however, my platform would be, let's enact a Clean Dream Act um, that is untied to anything else, just a Clean Dream Act. For kids who have only known this country as their home, who are as American as I am, um, many of whom do not even speak the, the language of the country from which they came, they deserve a, a pathway to citizenship. For TPS recipients, temporary protected status recipients, for folks who have lived here and made grown their roots here, they've had families here, they've opened up businesses here, they pay taxes here, let's offer them a pathway to citizenship or permanent residency if that's what they want. You know, we don't need a wall. A wall is not the solution. It, it just really isn't. We can strengthen our ports of entry and know who is coming in, but not everybody coming to the United States is, is seeking to do harm. And in Texas, the reality is we rely so heavily on our immigrant population as part of our economy. And I would love to see some comprehensive humane immigration reform where we allow people to come work here because our economy relies on it. And let's pay them a living wage while we're at it. Let's not take advantage of their undocumented status. Let's give them some sort of documented status so they can work here legally. And then if they choose to go back home, they can choose to go back home. But it seems that Congress has been completely ineffective in, in 
and crafting any immigration policies currently other than, a, 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 I'm sorry, I would say a stupid wall. So I appreciate all that you said there. And I'd like to go back to the immigration policy where this kind of all originated with the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882. I'm going back that far because it was the Chinese Exclusion Act which criminalized undocumented status and put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is actually mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated it and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. What are your thoughts on this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? I mean, I know 1882 seems like a long time ago, and that was the start of these federal immigration policies and laws, but it really is a relatively newer component of U.S. law. So when people talk about rule of law, like, well, my grandparents came here... Well, now, if your grandparents came here before 1882, they were immigrants just like anybody. There's no documentation status. There's no, you know, that didn't exist before then. And so it is cruel. And especially if you, you consider people who are coming here seeking asylum or refugee status, the fact that you could even consider separating families, there is a way to process, to create one due process so that their cases are heard. And we can do that by actually hiring more immigration judges to hear those cases, because obviously there's a huge backlog of immigration cases. And once somebody has been vetted and they, they qualify for um, asylum, let's get them integrated. Let, let them work here. Let them build their lives here. And honestly, you really should expand uh, what the definition of a refugee or asylum seeker is. For us to send them back to the country facing certain death or certain harm is really, again, it's cruel. It's ex extraordinarily cruel. I tell people all the time, I'm like, it, just imagine if Congress, and, and this is not a knock to any of, of the men out there, but imagine if Congress was legislating from the heart of a woman. Our priorities would be very, very different. And I think in immigration, we would have very different policies and, and laws if, if women were at least 50%, 50% representation in Congress in the Senate. And looking into what you accurately are describing as these new, relatively new practices um, that are not mentioned in our Constitution at all, one very important proposal that immigrant rights activists and particularly undocumented folks have made is ending the ERO or enforcement and removal operations that exist under ICE. The reasoning here is that if undocumented status is not a criminal offense, then there's no reason to implement punishment for that. What are your thoughts on this proposal? I think, well, I think it gets down to, again, due process. Let somebody have a, a, a fair here, again, assume innocence before guilt, and you have to establish that there is some sort of breaking of a rule or the law that requires punishment. But again, in these, 
in these situations, we're frequently finding that the punishment doesn't fit the crime if there was a crime. I'm with you. I don't think separating a family or separating a father who's going off to work for the day from his family and never being given the opportunity to say goodbye to them, that's, that's just it's heartbreaking. And it has happened with far too great frequency. It happened here in Austin several times. It happened in in Wimberley to a family. I don't know if you've got to see any of the videos, the campaign videos, that there was a little contest for better work on campaign video shorts, but one of them was the family of um, somebody who was detained and he did not get to see his family. They, they just took him off. Now, thankfully, his community rallied and uh, Congressman O'Rourke stepped in. They have him released, but he is awaiting de- a deportation trial. In this political climate, I fear he actually will be deported. And it's really sad that he was taken without being able to say goodbye to any of his family. Any of them. And that's for doing nothing more than going to work. Really, um, again, a cruel punishment for something that may not even be a crime. Probably not a crime on his end. It might be a crime on his employer's end, but not on his end. And what are your thoughts on separating immigration policy from national security, specifically by reversing the decision to put immigration agencies under the Department of Homeland Security in 2003? Yeah, that's, I I think that was, I mean, obviously we have, we do, we have to ensure that people are not coming, coming to America with the intent to harm um, and being able to keep an eye on them. But how, however, the majority, I mean, First of all, there's a net decrease of actual Mexican immigrants in America. So this false notion that people are pouring over the borders to take our jobs and rob us or whatever the president says that they're going to do is just that. It's a falsehood. It's not reality. And additionally, the Department of Homeland Security has almost too broad of authority. And I, I, I let me say this in a, in a way that doesn't dismiss at all the fact that we need to ensure that we we do have national security because what happened on 9-11 is obviously such a horrific event. I hope our country never, ever revisits something that atrocious and and horrible. The greatest threat to national security, honestly, is our reliance on foreign oil. So do you think we can ensure safety, which would ideally entail decriminalizing migration and demilitarizing the border, uh, ensuring that we do not see so many migrant deaths at the border without using the DHS? And to clarify, I'm not implying that things were perfect pre-DHS and pre-ICE, since mass deportation was absolutely still the case under Bill Clinton. But envisioning a better future where these agencies are not the ones dealing with our immigration system. I think that we can, I think we need to revisit immigration policies and immigration departments that reflect the realities, not a, a, a fake reality, but the reality of the ground, what it's like, um, especially here in Texas. And again, our economy and many southern states' economies rely on our immigrant population. And what I would like to see is something something where we can address it, the, the benefits we receive to our economies, but addressing it in a humane way that we aren't capitalizing on cheap labor at the expense of our economies. Um, so that's where I think we should start focusing our efforts on immigration law, because truly the immigration 
that we're facing here in Texas is an immigrant population that's seeking opportunities. And then, yeah, if somebody ends up in a criminal justice system, regardless of whether they were born here or not born here, it doesn't matter. They're in a criminal justice system. You know, and if they've done something harmful to somebody, then, then it can be dealt with at that time. We have the criminal justice system to deal with that. But if somebody is merely coming here for opportunity, we don't need to treat them as if they are indeed a murderer or as if they have done something that is so incredibly horrific that they deserve to be separated from their family. We need, again, I, I believe that we need more judges to handle our immigration cases. We do need to have, but we do need to, you know, have immigration policy. We do. They just have not been um, addressed in many, many years, um, except by the administration. He has addressed them, but I don't think that his policy policies are helpful to our country. I think they're very harmful to our country and harmful to a lot of the families in our country. That's a long way of saying it. it's, it's multifaceted. It needs a lot of work. It needs, it needs a lot of change and a lot of expertise. But what can we do that balances the, the need to not have open borders, tourist borders, with the need to, to protect people who are truly coming here for an opportunity or fleeing circumstances? And do you think that defunding ICE is a part of that? Well, I think that... I don't think we necessarily have to defund ICE, but what I do think we need to do is is start over, break it down. You know, we don't need a, basically a, a militant force that a police force over our immigrants. But I do think that we need we can systematically kind of dismember it and put it back together on, with appropriate guidelines, with appropriate guardrails, so that they can't just again, at the whim of an administration, go in and do the things that we've been seeing over these last two years. We've been seeing what they've been doing. But I think new leadership from the top down and uh, new policies, I think you can recreate an ICE that would truly, um, uh, could, I mean, obviously could be beneficial, but it doesn't need to be the immigrant police force, which is what it seems to be right now. So lots to cover there, but for the sake of time, we we will wrap up. So I thank you so much for coming on uh, and engaging in this. And hopefully we can get you back on after you win your election in November. Oh, that would be awesome. Thank you. Yeah, of course. Now, lastly, to our listeners, make sure to keep up to date with Millennial Politics by subscribing on iTunes, following us on social media, and tuning into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.